Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 8. Shrink Wrap Barely able to see over the top of the packages, I steered a diffident and tentative course up the crowded sidewalk to my car, where I shoveled the merchandise into the yawning space that used to contain the back seat. I'd removed the seat some time ago to make transporting my upright base easier, and even though I'd lost the base, I'd never reinstalled the seat mainly because I ditched it in the dumpster behind the Hobnob Lounge on Geary Street one night around 2 a.m. Thankfully, there were no tickets on the windshield, and after I settled myself behind the wheel, I paused a moment before pulling out to reflect on my conversation with Sands. At first, his parting remark about Carolyn taking a sabbatical struck me as cavalier or somehow indicative of a fuller knowledge of Carolyn's whereabouts than he let on. But after I thought about it, I decided that managing a business where you were constantly recruiting a stream of $9 an hour baristas to keep the store running had probably jaded his view of employee commitment to the job. Just then, I heard a tapping on glass and turned to find a red-headed beanpole with a Real Foods t-shirt glaring at me from the passenger window. I hit the button for the electric window, but like usual, it got stuck partway down leaving a four-inch gap for him to shove a snout in like an angry dog. This is a loading zone. You can't park here, he snapped. I was just going. Well, make it sudden. I've got a truckload of organic vegetables blocking traffic. I turned to look behind me, and sure enough, there was a semi-truck with his blinkers on, idling in the middle of the road. Sorry, I said. Time to get my carnivorous ass out of the way of vegan progress. I gave him a cheery wave, fired up the galaxy, and pulled out onto 24th Street. Munching on the remains of the all-beef Slim Jim I'd scavenged from the glove box, I stayed on 24th until I came to Folsom, and then turned left. Monica Mappa's apartment was three blocks down near the intersection with 21st. I parked Kitty Corner in front of a greasy spoon with Spanish signage that advertised Tortas El Primo, which I thought had something to do with tasty cakes, but from the not-so-appealing pictures on the yellow awning were apparently gigantic ham sandwiches. The building across the way was even less appealing. It had started life as one of San Francisco's ubiquitous Victorians, but now had all the unadulterated charm and structural integrity of Michael Jackson's nose. Successive remodeling, repairs, and simple neglect had stripped away the original aesthetics, leaving only a flat-sided, plywood-sheathed hulk whose only unchipped paint had been applied by the neighborhood graffiti artists. I went up a staircase that had treadboards from five different sources, including a warped section of a ping-pong table, and stood in front of a pair of pockmarked doors that led to the flats inside. The buzzer for Monica's flat wasn't working, and neither was a tarnished turn-of-the-century, 20th century, that is, brass doorknob. In fact, The only things that appeared to be keeping the door from swinging open from the gusts of autumn wind rattling it in its frame 
were a cheap-looking deadbolt and a folded flyer for a check-cashing service wedged in next to the lock. When I pounded on the door, the flyer came loose and swirled around the vestibule with a collection of leaves and dirt, but no one answered the knock, and I couldn't hear movement inside. I tried the other door to see if I could rouse Monica's neighbor, but I got the same response. Dr. Marvin Levin was next on my list, but it being almost lunchtime, I decided to take my chances with the Tortas El Primo and found out that they were actually pretty good. I went for chorizo instead of ham and used a Negro Modelo beer and an occasional toot for my flask to cut the garlic and chili powder. As I sit in the galaxy polishing off the last of the beer and licking chorizo grease from my fingers, my eye wandered to the back and I began to get curious about the Amazon.com packages. I picked up one that obviously contained a CD and found that it had been postmarked less than a week ago. That was interesting because Carolyn had disappeared a good two weeks prior and because she was not supposed to have any credit cards. The CD turned out to be Faceless by Godsmack, featuring little ditties like Releasing the Demons and I Fucking Hate You. More interesting was the fact that it was gift-wrapped and came with a card. The card had been addressed to Goth Angel and was signed by your secret admirer. The kicker was the message, which was all the more remarkable because it had been entered on a web form when the order was placed and was now reproduced in stark and personal laser print. Paint your toenails scarlet for me. I stared at the message for a moment longer, carefully returned the card to its envelope, and then leaned back to grab a handful of the remaining boxes and began tearing through them. By the time I'd finished, I had two more CDs, several books, a handful of DVDs, two gigabytes worth of flash memory, a wireless network kit, and a George Foreman grill. All of the loot came as gifts, and most of the boxes included a card of some kind. The addressee was always goth angel, and by and large her admirers tended to remain anonymous, but occasionally they signed with nom de plumes like Bloodslave, Skinner's Pigeon, or Incubus. The theme of the messages was consistent, involving either a request for Carolyn to wear certain clothes, or do certain fairly innocent things like the toenail business, or more cryptically, fan me with the breeze from your beating wings. A final item of particular interest was the fact that the shipments included packing lists, but the name of the purchaser was always Private Buyer, and the address given was an obvious front, a P.O. box in New Jersey. If any of the people who'd sent the merchandise were involved in Carolyn's disappearance, it seemed the only way to discover their real identities would be to get the information directly from Amazon.com. I didn't know much about the internet, but I was vaguely aware that Amazon had something called wish lists for their customers to request particular gifts, and I was pretty certain this was the way Carolyn had worked it. I decided I would talk to Chris Duckworth, the only internet-ready drag queen I knew, and get some more background on wish lists and making online purchases anonymously. I shoveled all the cards, goodies, and packing materials into a messy pile in the back and hit the ignition. It was time to have my head examined. Dr. Levin was a brave man. In a town where earthquakes visited destruction and debris on the population as often as Hollywood revived the gangster movie, he put his office in a brick building, an old brick building at that. To be specific, it was a red brick Edwardian on Gough Street across from Lafayette Park. I'd called him the first thing that morning to wheedle an appointment at 12 noon. I was 10 minutes early, but since the therapist hour was only 50 minutes, unlike the baker's dozen in that you get less, not more, I was hoping he would be able to see me. 
The nameplate on the door said Dr. Levin and Associates, so I wasn't surprised to find a large, somberly decorated waiting room with two other people cooling their heels on the burgundy-colored couches that ringed the room. There was a burnished metal sculpture that looked like the rib of an aluminum whale or wreckage from the Hindenburg in the middle of the floor, and the artwork on the walls looked like Rorschach tests for violent criminals. I followed the directions for signaling my arrival by flipping a switch next to Dr. Levin's name, and a small ruby light began to glow dully. I settled myself on a couch and got halfway through an old Reader's Digest article on Joe's pancreas when a bald guy in his late 40s with a tremendous forehead and a slight stoop came through one of the interior doors. You must be August Reardon, he said. He smiled in an insincere way that displayed only upper teeth and compressed his salt-and-pepper mustache into a bristly three-inch caterpillar. I copped my identity and he led me back to a gloomy office with two overstuffed chairs and a small coffee table with a box of tissues on top. He waved me into the larger of the two chairs and perched himself on the other. I hope you don't feel uncomfortable talking to me here, he said, but there weren't any other rooms available. Why would I mind? This is where I treat patients. I wouldn't want you to feel like I'm analyzing you. I'll raise my hand if I start to get anxious. We didn't have much time on the phone this morning, but you understand my reason for coming. Yes, I understand. Caroline is missing. But as I told you, there are limits to what we can discuss. I am bound by the psychotherapist's patient privilege to protect the confidentiality of communications between me and my patients. I squirmed around in the chair. My butt had sunk to a level lower than my knees, making me feel like I was looking up at Levin. I wondered if he'd engineered it that way on purpose. I can still ask you for your opinions about where she might have gone or what she might do in a particular situation, can't I? Yes. Yes, you can. If we are both very careful. He gave me one of his insincere smiles. All right, let's start with the obvious question. Do you have any idea where she might be? No, I don't. That's it? No elaboration? I told you we both have to be very careful. I grunted and pulled myself forward in the chair until I felt less in a hole. Do you have any reason to believe she might want to harm herself or leave home? Levin pushed out his lips and ran the back of his hand along the skin below his chin. I think it's very unlikely that Carolyn would harm herself. I would certainly have taken a more aggressive approach in her treatment if I thought there was any real chance of that. Her mother said that she was going to stop seeing you soon. Would you agree that she was ready? That's a decision that must be left to the patient. If you ask me if I felt she had made progress, I would say that she had. As to whether or not she felt confident enough to end the therapy, I couldn't say. What about leaving home? Do you think she might do that? Here again, we must be careful. In general, One could say that almost all adolescents and young adults feel the urge to flee their family environment at one point or another. The question is whether they choose to act upon those urges. I took a handful of the stuffing on the armchair and squeezed. Yes, that is the question, and you didn't answer it. Would Carolyn run away? Levin graced me with another of his phony horse smiles. The answer to that is multifaceted, Mr. Reardon. Even if I supplied it, I doubt you would understand. Multifaceted, huh? I know one thing that's multifaceted. Bug eyes. Is it like bug eyes? 
Levin looked like he'd swallowed a thistle. Please, I realize you aren't frustrated, but there's no reason to be sarcastic. I took a deep breath and tried again. Look, doctor, setting aside whether I will understand what you have to tell me, I know a little something about this Jaffe privilege. The intent is to protect patients from having information in therapy sessions disclosed in court proceedings or other situations when it's not in their best interest. This is different. Carolyn's family has hired me to help locate her and prevent potential harm to her. Given the circumstances, I think you could be a little more forthcoming. Levin's eyes moved over my face while he fingered the bristles of his mustache. I'm mildly impressed that you know the name of the Supreme Court case. And you're right about the intent of the ruling. So the question is whether helping you locate Carolyn is in her best interests. Implying that there are good reasons for her to leave? Levin waved his hand in an impatient gesture. I will say this. Her brother's suicide and her unhealthy relationship with her father have made her home life emotionally challenging. It wouldn't be beyond the pale for her to leave, but I wouldn't expect her to do it secretly and without warning. She's over 18 and could legally move out at any time she chose. I get the part about her brother, but what are you saying about the father? That he abused her? Levin gave me a cold stare. If true, I certainly wouldn't talk about it. If he wanted to give me the impression that the answer was yes, without saying so explicitly, he'd done a good job. Okay, I said. Assuming that she did go on her own power, I want to come back to the question of where she went. Her mother seemed to think she might have a new boyfriend. Did she mention that to you? Levin seemed surprised by the question, or more accurately, the assertion. She didn't have a new boyfriend, he said flatly. You mean that you know about Carolyn was always forthright with me. If there was someone new in her life, she would have told me. I see. I'd slipped back into the maw of the chair, so I hauled myself forward again. Her mother also said that Carolyn spent time at an ashram in Berkeley. Do you think she would go there? Levin smiled, and for the first time it seemed to be with genuine amusement. I know the place. Sri Atmanidi's Emporium of Peace and Enlightenment. I doubt you'll find Carolyn there. The man is a complete fraud, and she saw through him quickly enough. With your help? I like to give my patients credit for their own breakthroughs. I'm just the facilitator. That's swell. I reached for a tissue on the box on the coffee table and blew my nose with it, then leaned over to throw the tissue in a nearby waste can. Levin watched the whole operation with a faint air of disgust. Oops, I said, and held up my right hand. Had a little breakthrough of my own. I reached for a second tissue. You really ought to buy triple ply, doctor. It doesn't make sense to skimp on the Kleenex in your line of business. Yes. Do you have any other questions for me, Mr. Reardon? If not, I'd like to get some lunch before my next appointment. I understand, but I've got to believe the more productive route would be for you to tell me the things you know about Carolyn that would be useful in my search. Otherwise, I'm just groping in the dark. As I said at the outset, I don't know where Carolyn is. You're her therapist. Aren't you concerned for her well-being? Levin drew himself up. My ignorance of her location is not a measure of my concern. He sprang off the chair and gestured towards the door. I think we're finished here. I stood up and looked at him across the table. Just one more thing. 
Carolyn had apparently been receiving some fairly expensive gifts from strangers. Quite a few of her admirers enclosed cards where they made little requests of her, like painting her toenails a particular color. Do you know anything about that? Levin's mouth went slack and his pupils vibrated back and forth, searching for something in my face. No, he said. Why would I know anything about that? I guess because of how forthright she was with you. He trotted out his patented phony smile. Yes, and that's exactly why I think you're mistaken. She mentioned no such gifts. All right, doctor. Thank you for your time. I put out my hand to shake. The right one, the one I'd blown my nose with, and he took it, eager to see me on my way. I gave him a good squeeze. And don't forget about those Kleenex, huh? I said. As I went back through the door to the waiting room, I looked back to see him staring at his hand like it had suddenly become radioactive. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book mystery scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>